0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Jeremy Rosen. Rabbi Rosen was born in England. He is a graduate in philosophy from Cambridge University and ordained by Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. He has been the rabbi of Orthodox communities in Africa, England, Israel, Scotland, and the USA. From 1971 to 1984, he was principal of Carmel College in the UK and subsequently. Professor at the Faculty for Comparative Religion in Antwerp. He was the rabbi of the Persian community of Manhattan from 2008 to 2022, and has now retired to lecture and teach. His approach to Judaism is a combination of deep commitment to an intense halachic way of life, combined with both rational analysis and a dash of mysticism. Without further ado, Rabbi Jeremy Rosen. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Rabbi Rosen, it's a pleasure to have you. After having your brother, it's unbelievable to have you on. And I would love to hear, and I would love for our listeners to hear um, more about who you are and a little bit about um, what we're gonna be discussing tonight.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um I really don't like long introductions. So I'm very, very pleased. It was nice and short to the point. I was born in England of um, Ashkenazi parents who were also born in England. Their parents came from Eastern Europe. Um, They were of a Hasidic background, but my father went to a Lithuanian yeshiva from England. He went to a yeshiva Mir in uh, Eastern Europe in Lithuania. Um, And so I was brought up in a home that was a combination of Lithuanian Hasidic. So it had the warmth of Hasidut, and it had the more detached academic side of Lithuanian Jewelry. And um, my father was a remarkable man. I've never come across anybody like him in the Jewish community or anywhere else. I suppose the nearest I might get to him is the Lubavitcher whatever But apart from that, wow. he was really quite a remarkable person, but he was only 48 when he died. So I was only 18 at the time. Um, and uh, originally I had no intention of following in his footsteps, but he died young and I felt an obligation Um I had been sent by him to Yeshiva in Israel when I was 16. Uh, I spent several years there, then came back to English, finished high school, went back to Yeshiva again. Um, second time was to uh, Merkaz Rav Kook. The first time was to Beriakov. Then I came back to England, did my degree in philosophy at Cambridge University. Then I went back to Israel to Mir Yeshiva where I studied for four years and where I got my smicha, my uh, ordination from. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to go into the rabbinate, I returned to England, went into the Orthodox rabbinate in England, and then I had an opportunity to become headmaster of a Jewish boarding school um, uh, out in the Oxfordshire countryside, and after that I went back into the rabbinate, back in England, um, sometime in Israel, a uh, sometime in uh, Belgium, and finally ended up in New York when I came to New York to retire. I had no intention of carrying on in the rabbinate when I came to New York, but in New York I came across some of my former pupils from persia because this jewish school that i had in london it was a residential school we had a lot of iranians coming all the time from way back in the 50s and then of course when the shah fell hundreds of them came and we were able to put them up at this school while they were waiting for their visas to the united states of america so a lot of them all came over to america most to california um some who were if you like religiously orientated to uh, um uh, Great Neck and to Brooklyn and those who didn't care too much, but still traditional, came to Manhattan <laughs> and they were the ones who when they heard that I was around said come and be a rabbi and I said no no way I came here to retire and they said oh well don't worry it's a small little boutique we just rent space in Park East we get together on Shabbat morning on Chagim and it's just like that and uh, um, uh doesn't matter that you're an Ashkenazi we like the fact you speak English, we like the fact that we, we remember you as headmaster of our school in England, that you were very tolerant and open-minded. And when our very traditional um, rabbi who came with us from Tehran to uh, um, Manhattan retired, all the alternative rabbis they were suggesting for us were so black hat Haredi that wanted to sort of turn us into something else, so we weren't happy with them and we've enjoyed being with you. And so for over 10 years, I've been the rabbi of this little Persian community until COVID. Comes COVID, most of the young people either go down to Florida or they go up to Great Neck where they've got more room and space and everything like that. And so my community, as far as I'm concerned, isn't there anymore. So that's wow. part of history. Wow. Um, so uh My background, as you will gather from that, is a mixture of philosophy at Cambridge and a Lithuanian yeshiva in Jerusalem and finding a balance between the two. And that was my father's approach. My father's approach was, it's a bit like a pendulum in a clock, swings from right to left, secular to religious, so that there's a nice balance in the middle, the Shvilah Zahav of Rambam, in my father's terms. And he did not like compromise. You know, if you're gonna go for secular, get a decent secular education. If you're gonna go for Torah, get the best Torah education you can have. Don't go for kind of wishy-washy compromises in the middle. Now, my father also, in a sense, was a balance between the rational, he was very rational, and we'll call it the hasidic mystical mm-hmm. in fact he also used to, often used to say you know the difference between a hasid and a litvak a Lithuanian amongst the ashkenazim is that the lithuanians there's a famous pasuk ravi asetov which means as i'm sure you as definitely you know turn from evil and do good he says, the trouble with Musa and the Lithuanians is they're so busy turning from bad, so mira, they never get round to Asetov. And Hasilat on the other hand says, no, Asetov and then Mirah. Have a, do the right thing and then you'll turn from evil. And they've been so busy having a good time and turning, <laughs> they never get round to sorting out the bad side. In other words, what he's saying is that every part of Judaism has its good and it's bad. It has its abuses and it has its greatness and its inspiration. And it's finding a balance between these. And no two people are the same. Some people are rational, some people are mystical. And when you look at how the Gemara has dealt with people, within the Gemara, you find those people who are rational, those people who are mystical, those people who believe in muzzle, and those people who say it's a load of rubbish, those people who believe in superstition, and other people say, no, you can find everything in the Gemara and in the tradition, and that is the genius of it. Unfortunately, over time, things have become a little structured and fossilized, and we have broken out into lots of different sects. And each sect of, and I'm talking at the moment primarily about the Ashkenazi, but it applies to the society too, each sect has its own different customs, its different backgrounds, the things it takes seriously, things it takes less seriously. But what we have lost is this ability to be tolerant of others and to accept other people for who they are. And so religious life has now become a matter of conformity, of absolute conformity. So for example, when somebody would come to me and say, you know, I'm about to get married, Um, what should I cover my head with? Should I cover my head with a scarf? Should I cover it with a shaitl? Should I cover it with a shaitl with a hat? Should I cover it with a shaitl and a hat over a shaved head? Should I not wear a shaitl altogether or cover my hair altogether? What should I do? And my answer is, it's going to depend entirely on which community you want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And each community has its own rules and regulations. And if you don't fit in, go somewhere else. Don't try to pretend something that you're not. So this question now we have is on two levels. There's a level of what's happening in the Ashkenazi world and the level of what's happening in the Sephardi world. And this is something that um, worries me because I am on the one hand, totally committed to Torah, on the other hand, I recognize there is strictness and leniency. Some do more, some do less. Some are great hypocrites. They're very, very from outside. they very disgusting when nobody's looking. And some people, the ones I like, are the quiet uh, tzaddik nista, the person who doesn't like to flaunt his religion. And these exist. And people nowadays, in many cases, are confused. They don't know where they belong. So, you know, that's a subject that interests me. And the question of uh, do you take a rational point of view or a mystical point of view is very much subject to who you are. Some people, for example, in medicine, some people turn to placebos and they like placebos. And actually, placebos can work because there's a great deal of mental involvement in whether somebody gets better or doesn't get better and determination so you have these different ways of looking at things and i believe we have to encourage people to find what works if you don't like this rabbi you don't like this community or they don't like this shul go somewhere else there's a lot of choice out there i think also um
0: unfortunately people get pigeonholed like even even like i don't i don't like to be called a rationalist but that's really for f- to make things easy, we just call mm. us Maimonidean or rationalist. And yeah, the truth is that Rambam was a mystic as well. It's not like exactly
1: so. He did yeah.
0: both. So, so so that's just a very big misunderstanding that people have. Um, but I definitely see um the you know, the trends of today is that kind of like the Haredi world is influencing, it's trickling down to let's say the more right-wing Yeshivish kind of uh society where there's Blurring of the lines between what is a Haredi and what is like a black hat yeshivish mm-hmm. kind of guy. And um I'm just wondering your thoughts on you know where, where
1: ultra-orthodoxy is trending or orthodoxy is trending. Well it's very interesting because I've seen over the years how it has got stricter and stricter and stricter and added on khumra on top on top of khumra and uh, things that were not recognized in the past as being essential are now regarded as essential. And I think part of it, part of it is a reaction to the Holocaust because the Holocaust nearly wiped out the Haredi world. The fact that it is bounced back is one of the miracles of Jewish history to a position now where there are more people studying Torah than ever, ever before in our past and more centers of, of learning than there have been ever in, in our past. Um, and there's this, been this preoccupation. The other factor that's influenced is politics in Israel. Politics in Israel, like all politics, is extreme. And so, to give you a small little example. When I first came to uh, Israel in the 50s, there was a problem of nituchem the problem of whether you could produce uh, use uh, have autopsies. Right. Um, and in those days, Israel was totally dominated by the left wing. And one of the reasons why you're having a situation in Israel now is because the left wing suddenly realizing they're losing power. But for years, they controlled everything. To be religious or Sfadi in Israel, in the 50s and the 60s, you were a second-class citizen and you were made to feel a second-class citizen. And it was all these left-wing Marxists, neo-Marxists from Eastern Europe that were running the show. And they thought, you know, these religious... When I first arrived at Haifa, I came on a boat from Marseille and I was walking around the port with my kippah on, people were throwing things at me. You don't need that. When I went to a youth hostel in Tiberia and era Shabbat, I said, can I have candles? The manager of the youth hostel says, you don't need religion in Israel anymore. That's for the Galut. Wow. But you don't need that anymore. So, so there was this atmosphere. In this atmosphere, and this is going off the tracks for a minute, but it's relevant. In this atmosphere, what happened was that the Ministry of Health was controlled by Mapai. And Mapai was in league with Mapam. Mapam was more extreme than Ben-Gurion. It was the extreme sort of socialist party. And they believed, who cares about not cutting up a body? All this nonsense about sanctification of the body, that's an old fashioned religious superstitious rubbish. So they were just taking bodies and cutting them up and throwing the, the, the limbs onto the rubbish heap or anything like that. And the Haredi world, and to some extent, of course, the Saudi world were terribly upset by this. It's terrible disregard. So initially they said, look, let's try and compromise. And the compromise they came up with was, look, we will only agree to an autopsy if there's a legitimate... Um, um, uh, medical reason to help save life, or if there is a, uh, shall we say, a criminal reason to clarify, but then that's the only condition. Well, they agreed to that, and then MAPAM ignored it. And the doctors carried on and said, ah, they was really just not any attention. So they went back to fight again. And going back to fight again, they said, okay, look, so what we want is we want, we want certificate of approval And the certificate of approval has to be signed by three doctors and uh, a member of the criminal party that's to do with that. Okay, that's a compromise, they said. And then they discovered people were having signed documents in advance, prepared, and just there available. When somebody died, they take the body and say, look, there's a signed document ready. So that's when the Haredi turned around and said, you know something? No, no autopsies under any condition. Now, all the major rabbis at the time, whether it's Rav Uziel on the Swadi side, Rav Herzog on the other side, of course you can have autopsies if there's a good valid reason to it. But the Qareji will say under no circumstances, because they realize that if you start with a compromise, you never get anywhere. Mm. So what has happened is in the political battle between the left and the right, the right demand everything. We see it now over the question of legislation in the courts. No room for compromise we know we're going to have to compromise in the end. So this attitude of absolutely no compromise has become, if you like, the mood of the Haredi world. Now, what's happened in the Haredi world is amazing. When I was in the 50s in Israel, uh, two biggest Haredi communities at that time, the Hasidic communities were were Bells um, and um, Ger. And there was also Vizhnits. Um, Geir was in Jerusalem, Bel's in Jerusalem, Vizhnitz was in B'nai Barak. At that stage, the Rebbe at that moment was a brilliant, wonderful man. And he realized that not all of his kids, all of his students could sit and learn all day. So he established what were called Chativot Datiyot, which were like a kind of religious groups where those kids who weren't suited to study would go and study and would go into the army and they'd keep each other company, and that was the done thing. Years later, I, when he'd gone, there was another rebbe, and I got to meet the second rebbe at that stage, and I asked him what had happened to the Chativot Tatiyot, why weren't they there anymore? And he said, my Hasidim wouldn't let me. <laughs> so I already saw how the tail was wagging the dog, wow. and it's got worse. And I said, you know, at one stage, a new rebbe is gonna come into position, into power, who will be more lenient than the previous one. His unique selling point is gonna be tolerance and was gonna be moderation. But all the years since then, it's got worse and worse and worse. Although now for the first time, I don't know if you're aware, within the Gera Hasidic movement, which has become very, very powerful, there's been a split because there is a, a, a new person who has challenged the incense, not the position of the Rebbe, but has set up an alternative group within the Gera Hasidim that are less extreme, that are not so rigid. And there've been fights between the two groups, just as there are fights in Sotmar between the two Satmar Rebbers, the one in Williamsburg and the one in, in Monzi. So these Hasidic groups have grown stronger and stronger, but because in Israel, it's politics that gets you money, They make sure that they get whatever they can financially out of the government. They don't mind about political movements, left wing, are you Democrat, are you Republican, are you um, uh, right wing or left wing? Their only concern is what money can buy. And the result is that now these communities have grown so big and so powerful and so wealthy, and wealth is the only thing that counts. Mm-hmm. And I have a cousin, my first cousin, who happens to be a Gerachid, and a very, very important Gerachossid as well. And he says to me, I am so disappointed. I'm so disappointed with the way my community, which I thought was a spiritual religious community, and I love the religious side of it, mm-hmm. but the management is so corrupt, is so motivated by money only, I feel alienated. This is this is the community here, not in Israel, right? No, this is in Israel. I'm just talking about Israel. Israel. So
0: you mentioned the, the wealth, but there's I think what is it? The 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 poverty rate in Israel is like twenty, twenty-five percent, something like that. Yeah. And it's majority Haredi. So mm-hmm. there's this, you know, there's this concern that it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. And the coal you know, it's 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 it seems unsustainable. Um, so
1: how does that relate to what you were saying? Exactly? Well, first of all, it's beginning to fall apart. So for example, all the rebels came out against the iPhone and against computers and all these things, but in practice, they're being ignored. More and more of them are going out to work. Mm -hmm. More and more of them are going into the army. There's a battle going on, sure, but change happens very slowly. It's one of the, the good things and the bad things of a very strict tradition, a conservative tradition, that it moves slowly. And that's a contrast to the secular world where everything's a new fashion. Let's change everything and go on to something else and throw out the old. So it does move slowly, which is a problem. I agree. But sometimes that's better than rushing ahead too fast in going forward. So that's a very optimistic take, actually. So uh, Yeah, I am optimistic. That's great. Uh, yeah. I dislike a lot of what I see, but I'm very optimistic about the future. Now, the trouble, of course, is that not enough steps are being taken quickly enough on any front. But even on the issue of women in the Haredi world, women in the Haredi world are taking a more and more positive uh, role and demanding more and asserting themselves. It will take time. We were talking off camera camera about uh, um, Ravavadia Yosef's
0: uh, daughter, I think Adina Rabbanit, Adina Bar Shalom, I think her name is, and she's also very much involved in, you know, making changes and, and saying that we're going way too extreme. And she was saying, my uncles were not mm. were not religious, and we accepted them as family. We didn't treat yeah. them. So I think that we're seeing women um, speak out in that world, which is which is great to see. Um, and uh, you know, you you also mentioned something about Rav Um
1: his his psak from 50 years ago, uh, Yeah, tell our audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not the, the Sephardim should have confidence in themselves and not try to imitate the Ashkenazim. And they sort of wearing Ashkenazi dress, the black hat and the black coat and all these things. And that's because, unfortunately, in the early years of the state, the Sephardim were looked down on. And therefore, the Sephardim felt, you know, if I want to rise in society, I've got to be like the Ashkenazim. Well, thank goodness that's no longer the case, but that impact is still left there. And there's still this feeling that, you know, sort of the best yeshivas are the Ashkenazi yeshivas. You know, that, that's not necessarily true. Anyway, there's a different way of learning between the Sfadi and the Ashkenazi um, uh, yeshivot, And so it's like the old battle between the Jews of Persia and the Jews of Israel, the Jews of Persia looked down on the Jews of Israel. The Jews of Israel looked down on the Jews of Persia. And from a learning point of view, the Israelis were supposed to be brilliant but crazy. The Persians were supposed to be solid but boring. <laughs> so, you know, you had this, always had this distinction.
0: And and you you mentioned to me before that Vadia was very pro, you know, wearing Sephardic garb and not not uh um, adopting the—that's
1: right—and he did not like all the Khumras of the Ashkenazi. He hated those. He was the most lenient of the of the Great Poskin. Mm. and and now they're getting stricter and crazier and more lunatic all the time. Mm. And so, and you know, in that sense, but I, I believe in cycles. I yeah. believe in cycles. So so I think things are going to change over time. I think the pr- problem is that the secular world has become so morally corrupt with no standards whatsoever, and unfortunately increasingly anti-Semitic, that what happens is, if you hit somebody in the stomach, they tighten up. So in a sense, the religious world is getting stricter in order to protect itself. So let's take the Syrian community. The Syrian community has been very successful in America, in New York, particularly very successful by being tight and close, by imposing standards that never existed before. Mm -hmm. And, And in one way, they are right. In another way, they are wrong because if you don't fit into that very strict world, then you are made to feel unwanted and second class. Mm. But unfortunately, the pressure to assimilate in America is so strong that if you don't protect yourself, if you don't give your kids a good education, and more important, it's not just a good education, if you don't give them a feeling that religion is fun, it's enjoyable, it is inspiring, it is great, it's not just a rigid discipline, then why should they, if they have a chance to escape, not escape? Yeah, I guess as a Sephardi, you know, as a Persian,
0: um, I didn't grow up with a fear of assimilation because our communities are set up in a way like most Sephardi communities that there, there aren't denominations really. I mean, there are Ashkenazified Sephardi communities, but generally speaking, we mm. don't have, you know, have like reform Sephardi shuls, right? So um, we I sit next to a guy who is drives, drives to shul in Shaban and I sit next to another guy who's, who wears a black hat. But Mm we all pray in the same place. So there's that feeling of like, you know, tradition is so important and family and being together for Shabbat that our personal beliefs don't really affect that. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is definitely I see as the generations are, you know, growing and we're having children and we're becoming more and more Americanized, the threat is really looming. Mm -hmm. So I I actually want to understand in Israel, because I want to go back to what you were saying. Um, You mentioned that there's this political issue right now, almost like kind of a civil war brewing in Israel. Um, Do you feel that one of the outcomes from this whole situation could potentially be like, you know, creating a uh, constitution in Israel or something that they, what are they lacking? What, What can they do to solve this
1: problem? Everywhere at the moment there's a legal crisis. In America, there's a legal crisis because you've got sort of more justices who are right-wing than left-wing. Right. and so they want to change the court and so there's campaign and so they're fighting for it they're fighting other things in in america you're fighting on every front you know black lives matter anti-semitism racism all these things so uh if you like the the demonstrations well, we've be seniors of demonstration we've seniors of conflict this country is dysfunctional england is dysfunctional europe is dysfunctional tell me any country that is not dysfunctional at this moment. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge cultural battle going on on so many fronts simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, Israel's, I mean, you know, look at the demonstrations in France. Mm -hmm. Every day, it's sort of been going on and on and on. There's a rebellion going on in France, much worse than in Israel even. So Mm -hmm. this is the world in which we're in. We've been through different stages. As I say, I think Israel is an unbelievable Place so many different communities from so many different parts of the world, so many different degrees of religion, so many varieties all thrown together in a small little place. It's amazing it survived at all, yeah. and let alone do as well as it's done. So at the moment, it looks very, very bad, particularly to the American press who love to criticize Israel on anything, anything, are just having a field day. And so are the, in a sense, the reform. The reform don't like the fact that Israel has a different approach to religion to America. They're not reform-oriented. You know, don't change the laws, don't keep them. It's up to you. But you don't have to change things and remove things and, and and alter the text of the Torah and alter the text of a prayer book. You don't like it. Say something else or skip it, whatever. So there's a culture clash both of the diaspora and in Israel, and within Israel, and it's always been that way. I always say right. Purim we had. Purim we had, at the end of Purim, it says that Moduchai was ratsoi l'rovechav. He was only accepted by some of them. He wasn't accepted by all of them. It's always been like that. Right. So I'm, again, I'm not pessimistic. I'm sure there'll be some sort of uh, arguing and compromise and sort things out. I'm much more depressed much more depressed by the fact that this government wants to put a convicted criminal three times in a position of power in the government. That I find a bigger problem than wanting to reform the the, the judiciary. It's, It's this corruption which exists again in every political system. There's no political system without corruption. I've just been finished reading a book about the corruption in England. It's unbelievable. All the dirty money that comes in and all these oligarchs and others shoving money in and Britain's helping them wash it and clean it and protect it from the nasty Americans who want to take the money away.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, something interesting that I was talking about with a friend of mine, you'll, no- you'll notice throughout history, almost every single... Political leader or monarchy or, or whatever it is, their corruption was. It, it almost seems as if you need to be a little bit lustful for power, money, or sexuality, or whatever it is, um, in order to even even the Jewish tradition. Like you, you have, you have like for example, Bill Clinton, you know, with Monica mm-hmm. Lewinsky, and there there's always a, you know there's
1: always a temptation. In the Gemara, gadol Right. The bigger you are, the bigger your Yetzirah is. So, so people will say, people will say like,
0: you know, Netanyahu is corrupt or this guy's corrupt. They're all corrupt. I mean, what degree are they corrupt? That's know? right. That's the question. Yeah. Because it, you, they wouldn't be in that position. You know, they wouldn't want that position
1: if they didn't have right. temptations. Yeah. So, and, and therefore, you. I mean, and this is the problem with democracy. Democracy is a messy business. Yeah. And, and, and we're seeing at the moment that democracy is not working because if you, the party you don't like is in power, you don't accept it. Mm-hmm. And you want to destroy it.
0: Right. And and that's it's, not just it's in not, Israel. It's everywhere. They way, yeah, they found a way to kind of circumvent it. And uh, yeah. it's, it's terrible. But in terms of like, I think what's happening in Israel, it's fairly um, nonviolent, all these protests for now. And uh, the... It, it's kind of an example for how you know there is freedom of speech in in the Middle East, right? There's a hmm. so Israel Israel is being criticized right now, but at the same time, like there are some things we can look at and say, like you know, this is something we should be a little bit proud of. Like people are getting together, yeah. In a way. they're not they're not burning down buildings, you know, and they're actually trying to find common ground and perhaps they'll get there. Yeah. So I do want to switch gears now to another topic um and what i wanted to it doesn't have much to do with this but maybe some of the you know overlapping themes of the Haredi kind of approach will, will appear but i wanted to discuss um how Jews deal with grief it's a it's a totally separate topic but it's something that i i had unfortunately had two lost two loved ones this year and i've seen a lot of um um unfortunate behavior from people i think People mean well, generally, Um, and people will often make insensitive comments. And I feel like it's because when you don't you don't know what to say, you'll usually jump in and just try to say something and then it backfires. Um, So usually the common situation, oh, it was meant to be. God wanted them. Mm. It was like these things are or be strong. Don't cry. You need to have emuna, And these kind of things, you know, will turn off a lot of people who are like, you know, does that mean I should be bad? Because apparently, if you're righteous, God wants to take you early. You know. So, what I want to know is what what is the issue right now with how Jews deal with um, tragedy and grief, um, and what are some solutions that how to how to fix the problem? Because before I, I'm, I know I'm ranting right now, but another thing that they they pressure you to do a lot of people in the religious world is like, you know, go to the Ohel and write letters to the, to the Rebbe or, or say this 40 day, um, you know, miracle incantation, or do, you know, um, have you checked your mezuzah, check it three times, change your name, all these things. And then at the end of the day, the law of averages, you know, no, 50. Yeah, like sometimes it works and it doesn't work. That's, that's just because it's gonna, it has nothing to do with these um, superstitious acts. So mm. um,
1: what do you feel about this topic? I don't know if this resonates with you. Look, it, it does very much, but there are two sides to it. One of them, which I don't think we'll have time to deal with today, is the whole question of life after death, uh, resurrection, all these particular issues, uh, which in a sense are uh, part of the problem you know will you meet your father or your mother again in olam haba walking down high street heaven mm-hmm. and if you do Will you recognize them? Will they be when they were young, when they were old, with their false teeth, with a shaitl, without a shaitl, with an operation after an operation? Or, you know, what kind of image of them are you going to see? And as the Gemara says, nobody's ever seen it. We don't know about it. So then, the question is, what does that mean? And that's a theological issue, which I'd love to talk about. And if we have time, I will. But otherwise, we'll have to leave for another time. But then yeah, there's I mean, the practical issue.
0: Yeah, I think that before you go on, the issue also regarding that is that people kind of conflate the idea of like you know uh, Mashiach resurrection, absolutely, and Olam Haba, and they're all exactly, they're all different. exactly,
1: yeah. And these are all things that that have to be dealt with and uh, can be dealt with. And it's there's no simple, easy answer, as there isn't to somebody who's suffering. Mm. So when some and as you mentioned before, the book of Eov has Mm. this famous example of Eov sitting in this state of utter desolation, having lost his family, having lost absolutely everything. And so to speak, Job's three comforters come and they sit on the ground before him. And from that, we have the halakha, which is do not start talking to the person who's suffering until they start talking to you and you get some sort of feeling from them of what they want. Maybe they just want a hug. They just want, and and you know, one of the biggest problems I had as a practicing rabbi is that they always want you to speak. Yeah, say something, say a few words, <laughs> right? And when somebody's suffering, they don't necessarily want to hear words, and that's why you know to open up and come up with some sort of thing which people think they are being helpful. And you've mentioned some of the examples, some of the examples that. Everybody's allocated by God a certain portion of time to achieve something. Some achieve it earlier, some achieve it later. Well, very nice. So what are you telling me about a child that's born and dies within an hour or so, he's accomplished something? Oh yes, they'll say he did, because that will bring the parents closer together. Well, maybe yes or maybe no, but that's not necessarily something people want to hear. Don't necessarily want to hear you're going to see them again somewhere in some other situation and if so does that help them in the same way that the people will will come and say some things like um uh, uh you got you, your um your suffering at the moment is for a reason you must have done something to deserve it uh why I mean, death is a natural phenomenon. It's always been there. Are you saying that when somebody dies at the age of 100, they did something to deserve it? And are you saying that a tzaddik who suffers, as we say, tzaddikim do suffer? And we talk about yis surin ahavah. Why is there suffering? For clearly no good reason. Well, there is no good reason for it. So what are you going to say? Don't worry, it's God's will, it's what God wants. So you might as well say, oh, so God wanted six million to die in the concentration camps, did he? And then you have the question of coming back to do rebbers help. Now, for example, I have plenty of cases where people have gone to the rebber and come back and he has had an amazing effect on them. And I've come across an equal number who have gone to the rebbe and come back, and I know effect. I've had it's a 50-50 chance. If the rebbe right. tells you, I mean, it happened in my family. I won't say what the rebbe, who he was, but the rebbe said to my father when he was dying, you will dance at your daughter's wedding. The daughter at the time was 10 years old, and he died within a month. <laughs> Okay, so you, just as you'll get all these people from all the Hasidic moons, we'll talk about the miracles the Rebbe's or the Baba Sali did or this, that, and the other. If you actually tut up, it's a 50-50 chance of whether right. it turned out or not. But some people need that. Some right. people need a placebo. And therefore, some people feel better for it. But I and think I- it's different than a placebo because what's
0: going to happen is for them, a lot of times, if they do all of these, they're jumping through hoops. And they're doing all these things, and they're so desperate. In a way, they're they're going to turn their backs on Judaism because they think this oh, this superstitious like nonsense. This
1: is what this is what Judaism is. There's a danger. Uh, uh, for example, in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, there's a, the, the famous statement of "May you rot." Instead of trying to predict when the Mashiach is going to come, mm. because if you say the Mashiach is going to come and then he doesn't come. People won't believe in the Mashiach anymore. So right. the Gemara says that. Sanhedrin, black and white. But yeah. people don't, don't pay any attention. Look, how many cases do you have that the Torah and the Poschim all say, do not turn to magic. Do not turn to hocus-pocus. Don't ask for spirits of the dead or any of this rubbish of astrology. And yet most Jews do. Right. So, so the fact is that people need things people the, are needy but the need the, the yeah. whole
0: thing about like idolatry is probably the most re- repeated theme in all of the torah and really it's it's the it's the worship of the imagination it's mm-hmm. you you're, you're you only turn to these things when you're desperate when you need when you need answers right yeah you need you want a shortcut you want so you invent this thing of what god ought to be and yeah. and and these kind of these uh, false realities and essentially, that's the biggest um, uh, form of idolatry. Trick, yeah, form of idolatry. You're you're really like saying that God is not in control. And the problem is when it's. I think it's even worse today because it's in the guise of Judaism. Mm. It's no longer,
1: you know, Bal Peor yeah, right. or holding Cat. Oh, I agree with you. Yes. There are aspects of Judaism that I believe are absolutely idolatrous within the world in which we live. But in a sense, we have been so traumatized by anti-Semitism, so traumatized by the hatred that surrounds us, that I understand that people are desperate for anything that makes them feel better. And if it helps, it helps. But I find that, to be honest, dishonest. Mm -hmm. I I find these these mezuzah readers and the mezuzah checkers and all these guys that say it's for this and that reason are are frankly charlatans. Mm And and, and and people waste vast amounts of money on them. And that's why many of these rabbis are multi, multi-millionaires today.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that that's a serious, serious issue. Um, it's something I see, I don't know how it is in the Ashkenazi world, but in the Sephardi world, it's quite common. Mm. Um, it, and, it's, it's just as bad in the Ashkenazi world. But one thing I, I would like to see is kind of a, a um, kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to call it a reform, but changing the way people approach grief. I think there's like a, a lack of etiquette and understanding, Um, because you mentioned Sefer Yov, which to me is, it's strikingly silent about, or it's agnostic about um the issue of theodicy, why bad things happen to good people. Because it's presenting this story, like you said, that the, the friends, the three friends who come to to um, Yov and they start telling him, one of them tells him why this is happening to you, it's happening to you because of this, this and that. And it's telling us basically all this time, God is doing his own thing and these people are not privy to that information.
1: Well, I don't think that's what it's saying, to be honest. I don't think that's what it's saying. I, I, I think what it's saying is God is not Superman. If you treat God as a human being, and expect God to act like a human being, you're misunderstanding the nature of God. Mm. God by very nature is not a human. And and as we said uh, <laughs> a while back, when Moshe wanted to see the back of God, God says, no, nobody can see me. A human being can't see me. A living being can't see me. So it's our perception of God as being like a sort of a slot machine. You put in a, a, a coin, you pull a lever, and, and you get something out. And if I say the right thing and do the right thing, it's going to work out and it's going to be perfect. And on the other hand, you have, in Pirkei Avot, Rabbi Yanai, who says, he's got the guts to say openly, Ein bi'adenu. We can't explain why good people suffer and bad people benefit. It's not God is beyond us. And you have, therefore, to accept the idea of God as, if you like, an existential experience, not as a rational scientific phenomenon. And it's like love, it's like if I can be crude, the difference between love and sex. Sex is a physical function, it's there, but love is something of a different order. Mm. The physical world is one world, the God world is another and we have to try to reach out to it. Now, some people can, some people can't. Some people seem to be tone deaf. Some people have the advantage of being brought up in an atmosphere of love and spirituality, and others don't. Some are brought up just to obey. And so each person responds differently to the challenge of grief. There is no um, cookie cutter that's going to provide a simple answer. But therefore, if you really care about somebody, try to find out first whether they want a rational answer, whether they don't want an answer, whether there is an answer, whether there isn't an answer, and just find out what they need. Because what they really need probably is comfort, reassurance, and love. Show love. Don't give them stupid words that upset them. You know there's also
0: there's a trend among certain like I see it among Sephardic Kiruv rabbis where they'll scare people and they'll say like uh this this child is blind because uh yeah. they're born you know they 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 I don't know they looked at pornography in their previous Gilg yeah. this idea of like um people's tikkunim and and their their previous incarnations this yeah. is a very new phenomenon in Judaism and unfortunately people are using it to their yeah. I know, that it doesn't appear in the
1: Gemara at all. Right. There's no term of Gilgul in the Gemara.
0: Right.
1: I mean, it's all, and, and most, uh, Kabbalah is made up of three different sections. And, you know, sort of, the Zohar is, a, is uh, if if you like, from about a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. But even before that, there was always mysticism going back Right through to the Torah, fire, esh, is a symbol of mysticism. So Eliyahu goes up to heaven in a chariot, a Merkava of fire. And then Yechezkel's vision is of fire, and that's also Merkava. So you've always had mysticism within Judaism. The mysticism of the Zohar is a late arrival on the scene, and the very term Kabbalah is a late term. Before that, there was Nistar, or there was Pardes, Kabbalah consists, first of all, of the answer to philosophy. Philosophy was purely rational, so theoretical Kabbalah offered an alternative way to understand the universe and its understanding how creation, the idea of Ein Sof. Then you had practical Kabbalah. Practical Kabbalah was how can I do the things that get me closer to God through meditation, through contemplation, through thinking about the letters and the words and the formulations—the practical side of Kabbalah—which, under Abraham Abulafia, even included exercises akin to yoga—and then you have what I call the hocus pocus Kabbalah, the curing, because they didn't have doctors or that sort of thing in those days, so they relied to superstition. Virtually all. the superstition of the Kabbalah has been borrowed from the non-Jewish world of witchcraft and hocus pocus outside at the time in which they lived, because of the population, the only people who could afford doctors are a couple of the rich, and the rest had to rely on witch doctors. Mm -hmm. So you people confuse the three different branches of Kabbalah, which is a big mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... um if anyone
0: wants to learn a lot about this, they should read the works of Gershom Sholem because he he really, um,
1: you know, he, he paints the whole picture. Um, well, he does, but Gershom Scholem makes the mistake. And he mistakes the fact that in addition to all the nonsense, so to speak, and Gershom Scholem made this famous statement. He says, Kabbalah is a load of rubbish. The study of Kabbalah is a serious activity. <laughs> now, the trouble was, he had no feeling for Kabbalah at all, whereas his follower specifically Moshe Idel did have a feeling and therefore he's a much more reliable source because within Kabbalah there is something of substance. There's the existential experience but you have to be careful. It doesn't get out of hand and in the non-Jewish world there's this famous joke about mysticism. It starts in a mist and it ends in a schism. (laughs) <laughs> and that's it to a T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely playing with fire.
0: And, um, you know, we, we've covered the topic of Kabbalah many times, and we'll continue to do so. Um, it's a fascinating topic. And I would hope that we can do this
1: again, and I really want to thank you for for your time. My pleasure. So I wish you Shavua Tov, and Shabbat Shalom, and Chag Sameach. And do you have anything to plug? Any books? Any? Uh, no, you- no, I'm, I'm not a plugger. I, I I always dislike people who promote themselves. I'm suspicious <laughs> of people who promote themselves. Yeah. I don't. But <laughs> people can always contact me on a personal level through my email, and I'm always happy to, which is uh, jeremyrosen at msn.com. Thank you very much. Okay. All, All right. the best. Bye.
0: Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified Podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, Our Patreon is www.patreon.com. Slash Judaism, pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.